0: The most recent DNA evidence that I've seen in terms of peopling of the Americas shows this Middle Eastern uh, haplotype at greatest frequency in the Mayan people. So if that's your perception of where Lehigh and Company set up shop, then then the DNA evidence uh, would be consistent with that. Since the foundation
1: of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1830 by Joseph Smith, The church has been no stranger to controversy. The church was founded upon the notion that the heavens are not sealed, but that God continues to commune with man through prophets. The latter-day faithful have relied upon the Book of Mormon, along with the Bible, as evidence of God's continued concern with the affairs of his children. For these faithful, the Book of Mormon is evidence of God establishing Joseph Smith and those who followed in his footsteps as prophets of God. Its miraculous origins and claims of delivery through an angel make it a key evidence of the prophetic calling of Mormon founder Joseph Smith and, consequently, has made it a subject of intense criticism and controversy. If true, it helps establish the authenticity of Joseph Smith and others as authorized representatives of God on the earth. One of the more recent claims against the Book of Mormon is rooted in science and the story of the book itself. The Book of Mormon purports to be a history of ancient Israelites who lived and flourished upon the American continents. Critics of the Book of Mormon point to genetic studies and claim that scientific evidence thoroughly disproves any claim that ancient Israelites ever inhabited the Americas. But what do the facts say? Can the Book of Mormon be proven true or false by scientific means? Are there evidences for or against the Book of Mormon as an authentic ancient text? in the next hour we will examine the issues surrounding the book of mormon and the scientific evidences concerning its authenticity
2: the critics are not conducting the primary research and in fact the studies the published studies none of the published studies are designed to uh, with the objective in mind of testing any hypothesis regarding the historicity of the Book of Mormon.
3: No, that's not their specialty. I think,
2: I believe one is a plant geneticist and another one is an anthropologist. So the critics are simply co-opting data from these primary studies and um, imposing their own interpretation.
3: I would think someone like um, Keith Crandall who is a population geneticist and a computer scientist and a very good one. Dr. Keith Crandall who is in the biology department down at BYU
4: uh... has only been in the church a little bit over three years when he first wrote his uh... his article about DNA in the Book of Mormon he wasn't even a member of the church and he saw the fallacies within the argument.
0: The real issue is these guys don't actually look at the at the population genetic literature they don't understand the population genetic literature because they're not population geneticists so they couldn't interpret these kinds of data it's a very tricky kind of literature and a tricky kind of data to wrap your brain around but it's Pretty patently obvious uh, when you look at their data in this one figure in particular. Uh, you know, if you're if that's what you're looking for, it's there. You know, while some of them are,
5: are scientists and, and definitely allow their opinion, they don't actually do the research themselves. They
3: take the research that other people have done and add their interpretations. So many many of the critics are not do not have expertise in this particular field. In fact,
5: Simon Southerton, who uh, is an ex Latter Day Saint. Uh, has written about the DNA uh, topic and he's used it as a weapon to bludgeon his former faith. He admits that if there were a small incursion of about 30 people that came from Jerusalem into the New World with existing population it'd be almost impossible to identify their DNA. He makes the admission of what Latter-day Saints have been arguing along. Of course his argument is that well That's not the Latter-day Saint viewpoint. The Latter-day Saint viewpoint is that all Americans came from Lehi, and that's not what Latter-day Saints believe, and so he's basically fighting a straw man.
3: I like that statement that that Elder Maxwell made, and I'll have to paraphrase it. But um, he said, in essence, he says, Why do those in the great and spacious building really point, mock, and laugh at the believers? He says, Surely there must be better things for them to do. He said, but deep, he says, it seems as if deep in their seeming disbelief, there is belief. And sometimes you wonder if that's not the inner conflict that critics are are trying to solve by being critics. Trying to really convince themselves that they are in the right, perhaps at some level, knowing that perhaps they're not. For
1: some, it has been assumed that the events in the Book of Mormon have taken place in a vast area, even though the Lord has not revealed the exact location of Book of Mormon lands. However, through a careful reading of the text, we can begin to understand that the Book of Mormon events took place in a generally small geographical area and that its people were just one of the many civilizations inhabiting the Americas. Anthony W. Ivins, first counselor in the First Presidency and General Conference of 1929, said, We must be careful in the conclusions that we reach. The Book of Mormon teaches the history of three distinct peoples, or two peoples and three different colonies of people, who came from the Old World to this continent. It does not tell us that there was no one here before them. It does not tell us that people did not come after. And so, if discoveries are made which suggest differences in race origins, it can very easily be accounted for and reasonably, for we do believe that other people came to this continent.
5: The best way for scholars to determine uh, geographical distances in the Book of Mormon is from some of the descriptions of the Lamanites and Lehite travels during warfare uh, they They talk about how many days march it was uh, to different areas, and based on all of the textual clues that we have, it would have been a very small area, probably in the neighborhood of maybe four to five hundred miles long and maybe a hundred miles wide Now, a lot of people don 't think that that 's a very large area, but if we compare it to uh, uh, Israel, what we have there is an area of probably three hundred miles long and 40 to 50 miles wide. So by comparison, it's not much different. And in all the Book of Mormon texts talk about short travel distances. I believe it was very confined in what is called Mesoamerica, with the narrow
6: neck of land being the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. Uh, I know that many Latter-day Saints think it took place all over North and South America, but the vast majority of Book of Mormon scholars, and even some general authorities, believe it took place in a very
5: limited area. George Q. Cannon, who was a counselor in the First Presidency in 1856, he said that the um, principal area for Book of Mormon cities would have been in Central America. John Taylor, uh, John Page, Parley P. Pratt, uh, Orson Pratt, and Joseph Smith, several LDS leaders took a, quite an interest in a, a book that was published in about the 1840s by John Lloyd Stevens and Frederick Catherwood. They had made travels in the Mesoamerican area and had written about their experiences and Frederick Catherwood was an artist and he drew uh, some of the things that they had seen. And when that was published, uh, people in general took quite an interest in this of, of this, these ruins. They saw these ruins as evidence for Book of Mormon cities.
1: After receiving a copy of Stevens and Catherwood's book on Mesoamerica from John Bernheisel, Joseph Smith wrote a thank-you letter to him, saying that the book corresponds with and supports the testimony of the Book of Mormon. I have read the volumes with the greatest interest and pleasure, and must say that of all the histories that have been written pertaining to the antiquities of this country, it is the most correct, luminous, and comprehensive. Arson Pratt
6: is the one who really championed the hemispheric view during most of his tenure as a member of the Twelve. But in 1848, he said that the Book of Mormon accounts actually took place down in Mexico. Others would include John A. Witzel who was a member of the Twelve, Milton R. Hunter, one of the presidents of Seventy, Howard W. Hunter, uh, as a member of the Twelve, and later became uh, president of the church. The latest one I've heard speak about is
1: Dallin Oaks of the Qu of the Twelve Here I was introduced to the idea that the Book of Mormon is not a history of all of the people who have lived on the continents of North and South America in all ages of the earth. Up to that time, I had assumed that it was if that were the claim of the Book of Mormon, any piece of historical, archaeological, or linguistic evidence to the contrary would weigh in against the Book of Mormon, and those who rely exclusively on scholarship would have a promising position to argue in contrast. If the Book of Mormon only purports to be an account of a few peoples who inhabited a portion of the Americas during a few millennia in the past, the burden of argument changes drastically. It is no longer a question of all versus none. It is a question of some versus none. In other words, in the circumstance I describe, the opponents of historicity must prove that the Book of Mormon has no historical validity for any peoples who lived in the Americas in a particular time frame. A notoriously difficult exercise. Dallin H. Oaks. We know that there were other uh, Native Americans, Amerindians,
5: living in the Americas for tens of thousands of years before the Book of Mormon took place. Uh, So yes, there would have had to been the Book of Mormon peoples would have met and intermingled and intermarried.
2: The exponential increase in numbers of uh, uh, Lamanites, quote-unquote, in the early uh, generations of... uh, Uh, the Book of Mormon account, would suggest that they were incorporating indigenous peoples and usurping control or influence over those peoples. Uh, So I'm sure there was a tremendous amount of admixture from the very beginning amongst the general populace. That might give explanation to the repeated uh, statements by individuals in the Book of Mormon that they were a pure descendant of Lehi. Why else say that? Unless that was some distinctive characteristic that set that individual apart in the social structure of the times, it was very likely that the rest of the people were, were uh, marrying and and uh, and and uh, assimilating uh, individuals from, from the indigenous peoples.
6: The Nephites, in fact, didn't know about the their neighbors, the Mulekites, until. Um, King Mosiah I left the city of Nephi with those who would follow him and traveled through the wilderness as it says and ended up in a place called Zarahemla
5: where he met the group that had descended from uh, Mulek and those who accompanied him to the New World. We read in chapter 7 of Jacob where Sherem came and and he meets with Jacob. Now Jacob was one of the uh, original Lehite uh, of the original Lehite party to come to the Americas. And here's Sherem meeting with Jacob, and he doesn't know who Jacob is. Now, there couldn't have been more than maybe a couple of dozen adults at that time from the Book of Mormon peoples. Why doesn't Sherem know him? Um, he comes from a different community. You know What other communities he come from? He had to have been from some sort of outside community.
6: He's just introduced by the words, There came a man among the people of Nephi. Came a man among the people of Nephi. Sounds like he wasn't of uh, the people of Nephi. And yet he was... Um, clearly expert in their language in fact Jacob specifically states that he was a, he was expert in the language of the Nephites well you wouldn't say that of a native speaker all native speakers are expert in their language but it would suggest that here's a man whose native tongue was not the one used by the Nephites and yet he knew Nephite well
7: he had learned it contact with other languages causes languages to change more rapidly and so uh, it, it's probable that both the Mulekite language and the Nephite language were in contact with other languages, and that would cause both of them to change uh, more rapidly than would have happened in a vacuum. And so uh, they, they probably both changed considerably, and that would make them unable to understand each other after four or five centuries.
5: Yet, about uh, 200 B.C., uh, this is in Mosiah, we read that the principal grain of choice among the Lehiites was corn or maize. Now, unless maybe you're a farmer, most people don't know this, that corn does not grow wild. You cannot find wild corn. And that's because it takes very sophisticated cultivating techniques uh, to grow this, otherwise it dies. How is it that they received corn, which we know was in the Americas, Uh, it had to have come from some other culture that showed them how to uh, grow this, cultivate it, produce it. The Book of Mormon does not exclude other people from those
6: who came to the New World.
4: What we see is, is that early on in the Book of Mormon, we have Lehi, uh, Lamanite and Nephite being used to identify family groups. Laman, Lemuel, a couple other people broke off and they were the Lamanites. Nephi, Sam, Jacob, Joseph, a couple others, they broke off, they became the Nephites. These are family groups. They went separately. But later in the Book of Mormon, what we have that evolving into is a a class distinction, if you will. Much like um, Jews refer to themselves as the chosen people or Israelites, and everybody else in the world is Gentile. In the Book of Mormon, it becomes the same sort of class distinction so that later in the book, you have Nephites who believe a certain way, and everybody else is Lamanites. So it becomes much more than just a familial or a race or an ethnic um, distinction between people. It becomes more of a political or social
5: distinction between two separate groups who believe things in entirely different ways. The Lamanites they come into play in the Book of Mormon when there's wars going on and then they pretty much cease to exist and, and it's all about the Nephites Um, when the Nephites came across the Mulekites, which was not obviously actually their name in the Book of Mormon, it's what we call them now, um, they outnumbered the Nephites by descendant. They were a large group, but they're barely mentioned. They're a blip in the history, and it's only because the Nephites interacted
2: with them. When Jacob gets up and talks about his definition of Nephites and Lamanites, he refers to the Nephites as being the descendants of Nephi, but also the people friendly to Nephi. Now, why would you say that? I mean, if you you were not just talking about clans or tribes, but refer to people who are friendly to Nephi.
5: So to the Nephites, their lineage group, their tribal narrative with the Nephites, everybody else was Lamanites. Basically, you
2: have a us versus them, Jew and Gentile. And that same theme, I mean, that theme is throughout the Book of Mormon, and it's reiterated very strongly in the post-Golden uh, Age, when uh, at, at about 200 A.D., when the dissensions and apostasy began to set back in, and the ites began to crop up. But after 200 years of unification, when there were no ites, how could you possibly identify family Groups and clan lineages, lines and boundaries, and so forth. They had to be simply cultural or social groups. They were factional groups, and Moroni says that basically there are the Christians and uh, the defenders of the church and the freedoms of that uh, of the government that that um, shelters that church essentially, and there are those who fight against. It's them against us again.
0: If you if you interpret that introduction to mean that all of what we now consider uh, Native Americans to be descendants from this one group and only that one group, then mm-hmm. certainly DNA evidence uh, invalidates that hypothesis, right? I mean, that the DNA is just not compatible with that idea. And there's lots of DNA evidence that suggests from all kinds of different um, Genetic markers that suggest that that indeed uh, Native Americans predominantly are related to Asians, and there's lots of anthropological data as well that supports that idea. The evidence says that haplogroups A, B, C, and D
3: um, came across the Bering Land Bridge in antiquity, and you can debate whether or not there were, you know three different migrations each representing the haplotype or something that there was now one migration involving all of those um, is is up for probably still uh, up for debate
2: Well, new evidence is constantly revising and modifying hypotheses and theories about um, populations in this case specifically origins of, of uh, Native Americans uh, I was it was interesting to, to read very recently a a uh, posting by the Smithsonian on this very question of Native American origins. And they remarked that the the simplistic notion of, of just a, a few, two or three waves of immigration from an Asiatic source is no longer uh, the consensus view, and that more and more scholars are acknowledging not only a more ancient arrival time uh, by Paleo-Indians, uh, Paleo populations in, in uh, north america but probably from multiple sources uh, some as as uh, distant as australia uh,
7: coming across the south pacific first of all we know that there were about two thousand languages in the americas uh, when columbus arrived um, and only one uh... well two possibly a third language family is been shown to be from across the Bering Strait.
2: This is a prime example of a paradigm shift. The, you know, the old paradigm of Clovis and nothing else prior to 11,000 years ago, that, that facade has finally crumbled. And its fall is, uh, is pronounced. And, and um, there are all sorts of uh, new investigations, new evidences uh, much more ancient sites, uh, even even in the far-flung southern reaches of, of South America that predate Clovis.
5: Several years ago, there was an article in, in one of the archaeology magazines that talked about some of the findings older settlements in the south than there were in the north. Now, that couldn't be if they're all coming from the n- north on down. How did they get to the south? Uh, I think more and more scientists are are open to the possibility that at least small groups may have come across uh, by it would have to be most likely oceanic crossings, perhaps through the Polynesian areas and then eventually on to uh, the New World.
0: When you read actually the Book of Mormon, to me it becomes clear that there are other people here to begin with and that Lehigh and company are, are uh, interacting with and intermingling with these other people. So then it becomes a, a population genetic question of... Uh, how large is this initial population that was, how large was the extant population when Lehi and company came? What was the genetic variation from and genetic background of Lehigh and his group relative to that genetic background of people who are already here? What were the relative sizes? How quickly did they intermarry and interbreed? marriage has relatively little to do with it but how quickly did they interbreed and how quickly did the population expand beyond that and those are all the factors the population genetic factors that go into um... your ability to detect a genetic signature um, from uh, what would be a middle eastern group coming into a group that's predominantly of an asian european background
2: if indeed Estimations of population were accurate. There had to have been millions of people already on this these continents, and as such, the couple dozen people in Lehi's colony were a mere fraction by comparison, uh, not even a drop in the bucket. They were just a little uh, mist, <laughs> and uh, and would have quickly been um, absorbed.
0: The cr- critics argue that you know that the Book of Mormon is false because you don't see any Middle Eastern uh, evidence in these groups. So they're wrong on two accounts. The first is that the question of whether you'd actually expect to see any, and that's a question that we can we can address to a certain extent using uh, population genetic models and computer simulation. And again, these the critics typically aren't population geneticists, so they don't know about such things, and they don't know uh, some of the basic principles of genes in
2: populations over time. And, of course, the one of the central uh, plot lines of the Book of Mormon is war after war after war with these tremendous casualty counts, which each would serve as another stricture, another bottleneck that would... Um, limit the genetic diversity that was passed on to the next generation, only to be further um, diluted as, uh, as the more assimilation took place. So by the time uh, the Lamanites, the remnant of the Lamanites, were scattered about the countryside uh, hunting Nephites, there, there really wouldn't be much left of the original genetic material that was brought there. I mean, I mean as, as a recognizable genotype, that is, or even as specific gene markers. Um, and then, once you go through that, uh, that all-time low in the population numbers uh, during that uh, period from 1500 to 1600, uh, the samples that were have been taken in modern DNA studies uh, uh, really don't reflect the genetic diversity that existed. And that has been acknowledged by scholars. Michael Crawford, in one of his publications, very uh, explicitly stated um, that caveat, that the genetic studies being conducted today certainly do not sample the genetic diversity that existed prior to contact with Western uh, populations.
0: So, one, you have to couch whether it's even reasonable to expect genetic signatures. And then, two, they're just wrong. I mean, the fact is, uh, based on this paper uh, by Noah Rosenberg from the University of Michigan, um, that there are, in fact, Middle Eastern haplotypes in where we as Latter-day Saints would expect them to be in, in this Mayan population, as opposed to across all North and South America.
2: Since we can't uh, go back in time to 600 BC to sample the gene pool of Jerusalem of that era one might think well let's just go back to the Middle East today certainly there must be some similarities and nothing could be further from the truth the Israelites or the Jews rather inhabiting uh, the Middle East today probably have very little to do genealogically and genetically with the Israelites of of 600 BC but uh, but clearly that is not an appropriate source for a baseline comparison of would-be Israelitish markers uh, hoped for in the gene pool of modern Native American populations.
6: In genetics we talk about people who share a common haplotype for example. If we're discussing mitochondrial uh, DNA, which is passed on by a mother to all of her children, male and female, uh, this uh, is passed on in the form that she had it.
0: The mitochondrial DNA and DNA in general is very good at, at, at identifying individuals. And in things like paternity cases, um, at matching DNA, especially from a random background, you can be close to 100 percent accurate. You're never going to be 100 percent accurate, but you can be darn close to 100 percent accurate. So if if you send your DNA to National Geographic and they say your ancestry is European, then I guess my question would be, well, with what accuracy level are you sure that it's European versus something else? The fundamental
2: question is, what is being sampled? Uh, its It's been estimated that uh, the population of the Western Hemisphere during pre-Columbian times had uh, reached levels of 80 million inhabitants of North and South America and and but, but then it, it has also been suggested that by uh, the late uh, 16th century between 15 and, and 1600 that population had plummeted to less than 10 million from 80 million to 10 million uh, due to the exploitation of the native population by colonizing influences and clearly that number continued to decline in the wake of Western expansion in North America and and throughout the Western hemisphere
5: when um, Columbus in 1492 came to the Americas and made his first stops in in uh, basically the Caribbean islands and in Haiti and and, and uh, some of the islands around there they estimated uh, or perhaps scholars since have estimated there was maybe in the neighborhood of of quarter of a million to a million people in those island areas. Um, Fifty years later they figured there was about 500 people in those island areas and a hundred years after that by about 1650 they they believe they're basically extinct.
2: So the point being that the population that is being sampled today is a mere fraction of the genetic diversity that existed just a few centuries ago. So whether it's random or not begs the question of what is being sampled and does that take into account the genetic diversity that existed at one time.
5: Some scholars believe that up to 80 percent of natives were killed off by the wars or diseases brought by the, the Europeans. There was a lot of people wiped out, a lot of history that went along with it and a lot of DNA that uh, would have disappeared as well and so you reach these bottlenecks and lucky genes that can move forward and other uh, strands of DNA would have died out. There have been some studies
6: done by University of Utah geneticists some of them LDS, some of them not. They have tested ancient DNA from um, all the Great Basin area for example, mostly the Fremont culture and they have found that the uh, balance of mitochondrial DNA haplogroups was not the same among those people as it is among the Native Americans living in the same region
2: today. Individually our genetic makeup reflects only a fraction of the potential genetic diversity represented in our genealogy, in our ancestry, because uh, for example our mitochondrial DNA is passed down maternally So I received my mitochondrial DNA from my mother who received it from her mother who received it from her mother. So if you think of that, you know, that four generation chart, um, mitochondrial DNA only traces that bottom line on the chart. The mitochondrial complement of all the other lineages there, you know, on that chart, what is it, 16 on the right hand side, 16 individuals, 15 of the 16 have no representation in my genotype. Likewise my Y chromosome which is the other principal uh, target or locus of interest because of its strict paternal inheritance traces the upper line on that genealogical chart and only represents contributions from that uh, paternal ancestor at the very upper right hand corner of the chart. One again out of sixteen. So all the rest of that is is uh, not represented at least in my gener- in, in my person. There may be other individuals obviously of my generation that have some representation, but they may not be sampled in the study, for example
3: so if you come to a generation where there are no daughters or for example um, if you have many lines of this of females that have this ex-haplotype, and as they go from generation to generation, if at any one point they do not have daughters, then that particular haplotype is lost. So if you're coming in with a very small group of people that may have a very small number of individuals that are having children and trying, trying to contribute to this new population, that would
2: be very, very difficult. So, I may have saved back five generations, four generations, my uh, great-great-great-great-grandfather was a fur trapper and married a Native American, then my mitochondrial DNA would show me as a Native American, despite the fact that, say, all the rest, 90% of my cultural heritage, my genealogical heritage, came from, say, Northern Scotland. So that's the potential bias and skew that can be introduced through admixture of populations.
0: When, when uh, my wife and I have five kids, each one of those children has 50% of their DNA from me and 50% from my wife, right? So already we've <laughs> reduced our DNA data set by half in these children, right? When they have children, their children, my grandchildren will have a quarter of their DNA from me. So every time, in fact, uh, every generation, you're diluting what was a single genome by half and half again.
2: Take-home point being that there is no population out there that is pure. All populations have experienced tremendous amounts of, of, of admixture. So, And
0: then you throw on top of that, in a population um, context, uh, the concept of genetic drift and, and fixation of variants or loss of variants, uh, what... What population genetics theory tells us is that eventually genetic variants will either go to fixation or loss. So either everybody will have the same variant or or nobody will have that variant in a single uh, contained population. Now that happens a whole lot faster when your population is small and a whole lot slower when your population is very large. Um, So genetic drift, especially in a small population context, will erode variation rapidly.
6: We'd have to have him here, put a swab in his mouth, or draw some blood, because uh, the only way to find out what Lehi's DNA was like would be to have him give us a sample.
2: What is the effect of infusing a very small colonizing group, a very small gene pool, a literal drop in the bucket of the gene pool of the existing indigenous population of the Western Hemisphere? And would we even expect to find a genetic trace of that inserted population?
3: There have been many individuals well versed in this area who says that we can only catch maybe a glimpse and perhaps now and again a shadow of what these populations looked at in the past. In fact literature will um, will quote that up to 64 percent of ancient haplotypes are now
2: extinct it is not a scientifically testable hypothesis because one as we've already mentioned you don't know what you're sampling today it's a fraction of the genetic diversity that existed between 600 BC and and uh, 400 AD and even if you could go back in time and sample and identify a Lee height marker what would you compare it to The gene pool of Jerusalem of 600 B.C. doesn't exist anymore. The Jews that occupy the Middle East today have virtually little to nothing to do with the Israelites of that
5: time. In Jerusalem at that time, there had already been major minglings between uh, different groups, and so DNA was introduced from various parts of the world. So we don't have a standard to compare it by to say this is Lehi Lehi DNA the Middle
4: Eastern area has historically been one of the most fought over areas of the world. There have been conquering armies and that have come in and and wiped out people's whole peoples and flooded the area with um, DNA contributions from entirely different areas of the world. That has to have an effect upon the gene pool that's available.
2: Most of the the, The Jews from Eastern Europe and and, uh, Western Asia were converts, the Khazars and other ethnic groups that had nothing to do with the Israelitish bloodlines of that time. So you don't have A, and you can't establish B, so how in the world can you possibly compare them to test your hypothesis?
1: Despite the difficulties that have been presented on locating Book of Mormon DNA, there have been many new discoveries linking the Americas to the Middle East, therefore supporting the Book of Mormon.
0: There was a, a recent study that was published in uh, the journal, the academic journal PLOS uh, Genetics, I think, uh, just a couple of years ago that actually did, it, it's one of the most comprehensive surveys of um, genetic variation, nuclear genetic variation, across uh Across the world, and when you look at the at the at the data from North and South America, it's clear that the majority of those populations have mixed Asian-European ancestry. Although there is an interesting uh, an interesting bit of data that probably only an LDS scientist would pick up, (laughs) which shows for uh, the Mayan people and maybe one or two other cultures close geographically to the Yucatan area there's actually a, a nice infusion of Middle Eastern, what they call Middle Eastern uh, genotypes in, in those populations.
6: And then we have uh, what's called human lymphocyte antigens An antigen is part of the immune system it uh, fights off infections and they're different antigens for different diseases. Let's take an example. Take you back into the 14th century and you're you're living in a town and half the people have died of the Black Plague. Those people, unless their children survive them, their DNA is gone. And so the ones who, who survive a plague like that are the ones who have the antigen that will fight it off. And so you, you can compare various peoples to see which antigens they have. And these are inherited genetically. We know that it's, it's from the nuclear uh, DNA that determines which antigens your body produces. Uh, so some people will have a certain set of antigens, some will have other sets of antigens and from those you can get some idea of where their ancestors were from because of uh, the types of, of antigens found in other areas as well. Uh, for example, uh, James Guthrie uh, noted that there are 18 non-Indian alleles that, uh, that in fact are found in, um, in the genes
3: Allele refers to nuclear DNA, so um, at fusion, um, when you're just really barely in your mom's womb, any one of us gets a copy of, of DNA from mom, a copy of DNA from dad. So those, so you actually have two copies of the same gene, and those are known as alleles, those separate copies. 18 of, the allele, of these alleles that produce
6: the antigens are found in uh, Native Americans but are not exclusively in Native Americans. They have some that are exclusive to them, but the 18 are not exclusive to them. Of those, half, nine, originated among Afro-Asiatic peoples. Half of the n- non-native antigens found among Native Americans are from the Middle East, from from those very people. These nine alleles that they, that they share with other peoples in the world, 47% of the total of the non-Native American antigens, that is to say, things that didn't start in America but were brought here from elsewhere, 47% of them are actually from that Middle East area.
3: The Y chromosome is a particular piece of DNA that's inherited by all males that actually makes them male. So, for example, um, males would have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. Females would have two Xs. The Y chromosome
6: studies are less common throughout the world, and especially in, in terms of Native Americans. A lot more studies on mitochondrial or female-line DNA has, have been done than on the Y chromosome. What's interesting, though, is that the Y chromosome studies are more supportive of a Middle Eastern origin for Native Americans.
3: Mitochondrial DNA is a a very small molecule of of DNA. It's made up of the genetic alphabet. There are four letters, G's, A's, T's, and C's. And when you compare the mitochondrial genome to the nuclear genome, it's very modest. The mitochondrial genome will have on the order of 17,000 pieces of information, whereas the nuclear genome uh, will have on the order of 6 billion 6 or 7 billion pieces of information. 36% of Native Americans
6: have it, have the the Y chromosome labeled 1C, while 31% of Near Eastern Jews have it.
3: My personal view, my scientific um, opinion, um, linguistics, um, so on and so forth, and some of the cultural themes found in, in the Book of Mormon that are consistent with ancient Near Eastern populations, um I think I think that's solid enough and plus you add to that the the spiritual conviction that the book of mormon is true if you've really read it and prayed about it and done all the things that a person who is sincerely interested in finding out whether or not that was an ancient record revealed to a to a boy prophet by by God um I'm I'm completely convinced in the authenticity of of the Book of Mormon, have no reservations about it.
7: In the second verse of the Book of Mormon, Nephi states that he makes his record in the language of his father, which consists of the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians. Uh, Both Hebrew and Egyptian are mentioned again at the end as Mormon and Moroni attempt to complete the Book of Mormon record. And then in Mosiah, we learn that Lehi, having been taught in the language of the Egyptians, could read the engravings on the brass plates. There is linguistic evidence that ties
6: Mesoamerica uh, to the Near East as well. Uh, Back in the 1960s, Pierre Agrinier, a French linguist who worked with Maurice Swadesh, who was one of the great fathers of linguistics, uh, actually compared the Sawiza language family of southern Mexico With the Hebrew language, and he determined what he used was the list of two hundred words that Swadesh had prepared. Swadesh believed that these were the two hundred words that changed more slowly in languages as they separated from their sister language. The list of two hundred includes things like fire, ashes, um, mother, food, and uh, as a generic term, and uh, a Grenier determined that of those uh, terms in Sawiza languages five percent of them were corresponded in both sound and in meaning that is to say uh, both in lexical meaning as well as in uh, the phonetics they would correspond to Hebrew five percent. Uh, a friend of mine Robert F. Smith who is done a lot of Semitic studies and uh, in fact studied at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and did a lot of Egyptian while he was there and even before that he looked at the same list and compared it not with Hebrew as Agrenier had done he compared it with what uh, uh, with the Egyptian terms and he found that 13 percent of the Saviza words on the list corresponded to Egyptian. They were cognates. Brian Stubbs, who is a Latter-day Saint and is an expert in the Utah-Aztecan languages, has been comparing them, not just with Hebrew, but with languages cognate to Hebrew, such as Arabic. And he has concluded that there are a lot of remnants
7: of the Hebrew language that one can find in the Utah-Azteco language. As a linguist, I have found considerable evidence of Hebrew and Egyptian in at least one language family Uh, Uto-Aztecan. I have not yet published my findings for the linguistic community. The Uto-Aztecan language family is a language, uh, about 30 related languages that are descended from what linguists call Proto-Uto-Aztecan. Their geographic location ranges from Idaho in the north to Mexico City in the south, basically. There are a few dialects in other places. Uh, About half of them are in the southwest United States, the other half are in Mexico. Actually, what I find in uto Tekken is two different dialects of Northwest Semitic and a, a quite a bit of Egyptian that has the same sound correspondences as one of those dialects of Northwest Semitic. Northwest Semitic is the branch of Semitic that Hebrew comes out of, Hebrew and Phoenician and so forth. Uh, now, that's extremely interesting because that's exactly what the Nephite merger would be, is this merger of two different dialects of Northwest Semitic, one of them having a significant amount of Egyptian in them. And so it's extremely consistent, in fact so consistent that the probability of that happening by chance uh, would be very low. Another thing we need to keep in mind about the uh, Mulekites is that uh, we don't know how they got here, except they obviously crossed the ocean somehow, but uh, the Phoenicians were the uh, prominent seafaring people of that time in, near Palestine. and In fact, uh, the fact that the people of Mulek named their main waterway the River uh, Sidon, well, Sidon is a major port city of the Phoenicians. We do
6: have archaeological evidence that Mesoamerican peoples actually did move north and settled in the American Southwest mostly in the area of Arizona, New Mexico. Chaco Canyon, for example, in New Mexico, there's evidence of two different cultures living there side by side. And one of these is very close to what we find in Mesoamerica. They build the same kind of structures, they use the same kind of pottery, and so on. The Book of Mormon also talks about uh, the two remaining sons of the first Heleman who actually left and went to the north country, we have others going to the north, we have the and
7: robbers at one point going to the north. First of all, it might be good to know that Udo-Aztecan is not really all that far from the Mayan area, in fact uh, some dialects, Aztecan dialects, are actually uh, south of Mayan areas, Uh, some peel is located uh, in various places uh, around the Mayan area. Um, uh, In fact, most Udo-Aztecan languages are located in what most LDS archaeologists would consider to be the Nephite land northward, Uh, in other words, in Mexico and and then perhaps further north of that in the United States. DNA and language don't always match. In fact, it might be that they match uh, less than half the time. Um, For example, everybody in Europe has Roman DNA, also has Celtic DNA, also has Germanic DNA. Uh, Even though those were three separate people, they've mixed enough being in the same area that uh, uh, geneticists cannot uh, isolate Celtic DNA, for example, nor Germanic DNA. There's simply this European DNA that's a mixture of everything. Um, And so uh, peoples in the Americas could well be descended from Book of Mormon peoples, even though they are not speaking uh, languages descended from Hebrew or Egyptian. I
5: 100% believe it's true. My primary reason for believing is true is based on uh, spiritual testimony. And I I am convinced of its truth because I have felt it spiritually and I felt the still small voice whisper it to me. I feel empowered and strengthened and emboldened by scientific studies. I think there is a lot of evidence that implies uh, a plausible story for the Book of Mormon. There are um, language studies that suggest that some of the phrases in the Book of Mormon were not known in Joseph's day but are accurate in Hebrew. Um, we have real examples, despite what the critics say, we have real examples of what can be termed reformed Egyptian as an adjective, as some sort of modified Egyptian. Um, we have actual metal plates that have been found as the Book of Mormon describes. Um, the, the list goes on and on. We have the witnesses, um, which the critics try very hard to impugn their testimony because uh, it's uh, uh, something that sticks in their craw I believe because we have the three witnesses that talk about an angel and then we have uh, eight witnesses that talk about feeling and hefting the plates and so the critics attack those things because it's very strong evidence that Joseph Smith was telling the truth that there's something more to it than just Joseph Smith's imagination. You have other people testifying to it as well. So there's a whole bunch of evidences that strengthen my faith. If those evidences weren't available, I still would believe because of uh, my spiritual testimony. But uh, I'm happy that they're there because they, they make me feel uh, more comfortable in my belief.
0: So I've been a member of the church for four years now. I've been a professor at BYU for 11 years. <laughs> so um, and in fact, when I wrote my first article on DNA in the Book of Mormon, was as a non-member. So I really didn't have a, at that time, much of vested interest one way or the other, right? I, I really um, came at it from the point of view of a population geneticist, thinking about this problem and thinking about how you'd actually go about testing it, and recognizing that the people who were making the arguments were not interested in testing the hypothesis, they were interested in making an argument. So... To me, it wasn't much of a science claim in the beginning.
3: I mean, my belief is that it is true. It is an authentic record of God's dealings with people from Jerusalem on this continent. Um, I know that. I I feel that. I've come to know that personally. And I think that that sort of internal sense of knowing something on a spiritual nature and level is much more important than whatever scientific data um, is out there because once again scientific data comes and goes. You don't see anyone reading the scientific literature from the 1800s because we've moved past that.
0: Since studying the Book of Mormon and knowing, having a genetic background, um, knowing what I do about this field, it obviously hasn't hampered my enthusiasm for, uh, for my testimony of the Book of Mormon, the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. Or, my enthusiasm in joining the church and being a fully participating member of the church. so um, to me the you know the the authenticity, the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon is something that's fundamentally different from a science expedition, right? It's not a hypothesis to be tested. it's a it's a speaking of the Holy Ghost to your heart, and that's what made my conversion. And I hope that's what most people's conversions are based on, and most people's um, membership in this church is based on. So these these to me are fun academic exercises to think about, but you know, they're they have uh, relatively little to do with my personal faith and my belief in the in the. Book of Mormon, and in Joseph Smith as a prophet.
3: So the sci- scientific data really doesn't play a role. It's like trying to say, is there archaeological evidence for Jesus Christ? Um, it just doesn't really matter or, or make sense. It, it's, a, it, it's a person's personal belief.
0: We shouldn't have our b- religious beliefs based on scientific data, right? Which, as a scientist, frankly, was a bit of a hard thing for me. Um but when you know, I, I taught doctrine and covenants this fall, right? And when we're talking about Joseph Smith and the first vision, and we're covering these concepts I feel the Holy Ghost. I feel the Holy Spirit touching my heart right now. I can feel that. That is real. And There's no experiment I can design (laughs) to substantiate it or refute it.
2: If you just stop and think about the question, it is the most unscientific proposition that there is, which is actually quite elegant. In other words, there is no way to scientifically test the Book of Mormon. Its veracity lies in the realm of faith and in personal testimony. I mean, you can look for all the archaeological Uh, corroboration, and those things are interesting, and those things can bolster faith and so on. But ultimately, when it comes to the DNA question, it has no bearing whatsoever on the historicity of the Book of Mormon.